Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, listeners. What has been on my mind this week? Well, I have been thinking about the divine. Specifically, I've been thinking about, well, let's start here. The question has been asked by theologians and some philosophers, was it better for God to create or not to create it, create at all? And it's considered one of the most difficult questions before. I've addressed it before on this podcast, but I'll kind of go through it again in brief because it's a good starting point. Personally, I don't think that the question is very difficult to answer at all, because really what it boils down to when you're asking that question about God himself is did God prefer to create, even though there were going to be all these costs, etc., etc.? And, I mean, the fairly obvious answer to that is yes, because, well, here we are. And if God really is there, and we are here, then yes, God preferred to do it. And even if you take out the idea of omniscience, you can at least surmise that God, being very, very wise, but not totally omniscient in this, in this hypothetical scenario, uh, that he understood that huma- humanity was very likely to sin, very likely to reject him, etc., etc. Um, and even in spite of that risk, just as a parent who wants to have a child, but knowing that that child will cause them some discomfort, some anxiety, some annoyance, and maybe worse, uh, they still make the choice anyway. But God being omniscient and knowing darn well sure, as I believe, that we were going to sin, although I don't believe in Calvinism at all, well, he made the choice. So clearly it was better to create than not to create, because God, who does not fail to do anything but that which is good, chose to create, therefore to create is good. But further than that, what motivated God to create? Well, this is a tricky question, and I'll get back to why that is the case towards the end. But just for the sake of the argument, what impelled God, if you will, to create at all? And I think that that is answered fairly well when you consider the fact that the Apostle John, when writing his gospel, said that God is love. Okay, so I take that to mean that God is, in his being, his nature, his personality, the core and, um, what's the word, his personality, his character exhibits the very essence of what love is. It's not that love is God. It's that if you want to find the prime example of what love looks like, you look to God. And this is, of course, why I have my definition of love, which is to act towards the good of the other to the best of your ability. Of course, in God's case, that's pretty darn Good ability, shall we say? Anyhow, but back to the original question, what is it then that love chooses to do? Is love satisfied with only loving the self or that which is closest to one? Now, we, being human beings, are not a trinity, a doctrine that I think is true, but I don't think has been adequately explained, and I don't think human beings can adequately explain it, but even if that were the case, we could extend the analogy, that is to say, if we were more than one being in and of ourselves in some sense, 
Would it be enough for us if we really were filled to the brim with love, to only love that and nothing more? Or is it the case that love desires more to love? If you are overflowing with love for yourself and for all other things that you do or could potentially love, do you want more to love or do you just want to keep it at this narrow number of, say, three? Well, many of us, unfortunately, and probably most of us, do not have that measure of love. But if you've ever experienced it, for example, the woman who recently got married and now she's filled to the brim with a desire to have and to love a child, it's a little bit more like that. And don't get me wrong, there are a good number of men, especially more traditional, conservative, and... Uh, what's the word? Just good-minded men in general, not to say that that means traditional and conservative, it's just that there is the tendency there. They too have, not exactly baby rabies, but a desire to have a child, I should know. Anyway, there is the sense in which, yes, we want to love more, and children are not the only example of this. If you have good friendships, if you have really life-giving and, uh, sorry, not just life-giving, but life-sharing relationships with friends, do you want more people to be included in that number or less? Well, if you want less, then there is a limit, obviously, to the amount which you actually are sharing life with one another. But if there is a life overflow, then why wouldn't you want other people to be included in it so long as they do not try to ruin or degrade the quality of that love. If there are other people that you run into who are capable of connecting to that kind of a life-giving and life-sharing set of relationships, then they, by all means, should include, or should be included, should be let in. Love, by its very nature, when it is overflowing, and of course in the case of God, we can only surmise that it must be constantly overflowing, desires more to give its love to, so to speak, or his or her love, outwardly. So in my opinion, the simple answer to what is it that impelled God to create, it is because he is the essence of love. He, desiring to love more than just himself and presumably the angels, wanted more still. And if this is the case, then there's nothing preventing the idea, the possibility that God might have more things that he will do in the distant future in the sense of creative acts, or maybe he'll let us take that over or something like that. I don't know. These are not matters in which there is any grounded the theology and good, because as, the as uh, theological doctrines would tell us, nobody knows the mind of God. Anyhow. Now you might say, but if you just said nobody knows the mind of God, then how could you say that you understand what impelled God, so on and so forth? I get that. I am not trying to say that I understand the motivations of God. I'm trying to go on what I do understand. And it's one thing to try to understand why God might have done something in the past. It's quite another to try to predict what God will do in the future. But if the pattern holds probably the pattern will continue to hold into the future. Anyway, that aside, why am I going on about this? Well, what this conversation is actually about is free will in the end, but we'll get there too. The question I have been going into is 
what was necessary in the act of God to create in order to have in the first place other beings that he could love and who could love him. Now, many of you who are familiar with theological arguments and free will arguments are already going to recognize the steps that I'm taking towards an argument towards free will. But that's not my immediate goal. I'm trying to surmise, or to at least theorize, what was necessary in the fine details of our creation to make such a reality possible at all. More, you might say, on the physical level or on the level of our nature as human beings. There's a verse in scripture, I believe it's in the Psalms, where it talks about, I think it's David writing, and some people are thinking that he's speaking for the angels in this case, which is an interesting theory. It says, you have created man just a little bit lower than the angels. Now, that's one possible interpretation. I have heard of others. Another possible interpretation of that verse is a great deal more striking. It goes like this. You have created man with just a little bit of God missing in him. And of course, that would extend to her as well. Probably. <laughs> Mankind, right? Anyway. Now, if the latter interpretation holds true, then that gives me a hint towards what God might have been actually been doing and why he had to do it this way. See, if God had created beings truly in his image, which the word of God does not say about angels at all. It calls them by many interesting um, orders of appearance, such as uh, having four heads and many wings and so on and so forth, and it sounds really kind of frightening. Anyhow, about human beings only does it actually say that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And that theological doctrine does align somewhat with that interpretation of the psalm. So if it's true, let's say that God, instead of making beings in his image, simply made beings that were like him in every detail. They're morally, ethically perfect from the get-go, they're omnipotent and omniscient, and so on, right? Wouldn't that kind of solve the problem, or not problem, but the impelling of God to make others just the same as himself so that there could be more love to be shared? Well, this goes into even deeper theology. God is free from the bounds, as far as the theology goes, of space and time. Omnipotent and omniscient. He, doesn't, he isn't necessarily in every place at every time. That's a deeper the another theological debate that will go too much into the weeds for today's conversation. The point is that he is not limited by space or by time. Now... If he were to make other beings that were exactly the same as him in every respect, not being limited by space or time, then metaphysically or maybe even physiologically in a certain sense, I can't see any way around the idea that this would merely mean more God. In other words, you would add nothing to the universe that isn't already there. Because if God is the all-in-all, all, then for him to make more of that which is the all-in-all all is to add nothing. God, as such, cannot be added to or taken away from. This, I think, is why the Hindus believe in the idea that we will be 
absorbed into Atman at the end of all things, or when we finally achieve our paradise. We don't uh, go into a paradise, we become the paradisal being, we become God. But that aside, once again, I think that that is what would have actually happened or would inevitably occur if God simply made more God. You can't add to him, so you would simply be more of him, and nothing would change. So in order to make, in order, rather, to make beings that are separate sufficiently from him so that they could love him and he could love them, or if we want to go in the theological order, that he could love them and they could love him, they can't be totally God. They cannot be a complete carbon copy. We have to have a little bit of God missing in us. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more tricky, and it introduces free will in a deeper theological sense that I, don't, I haven't ever heard anybody try to argue. If we have only just a little bit of God, or a lot of God, missing in us, because I'm not saying that that interpretation is absolutely accurate, then there is necessarily the possibility for us to reject our God-likeness. Of course. God himself cannot reject his Godness because he is already God. And he cannot sin because that would be to go against his core nature. It's not that he has the option of sinning and chooses against it. It's that he, being God, cannot go against Godness, which is the definition of what it is to sin. However, if we are made with a little bit of God missing in us, then by definition, we must have the opportunity, the capacity to say, I don't want this. I do not want to be like God. Now, why would that be necessary? I haven't quite sorted that one out yet. This is a much newer and fresher thought than most of the ones that I've shared on this podcast. But let me see if I can come to any interesting arguments on the point. Why would it be necessary for us to be able to have the capacity to reject our God-likeness? Hmm. There is a debate among theologians about the difference between the free will of God and the free will of men. What really is the difference? God, of course, has the capacity that is the power to create out of thin air, or at least so we believe, and I think it's in a certain sense true at least. We don't. We have the capacity to make things, but we can't just poof things out of midair. Or less than that, out of void. But if we have the likeness of God in us, hmm, then what is it that we can create? Oh, this is interesting. We can, in a sense, co-create ourselves. If we have ownership over ourselves first, which is not to say we own absolutely nothing else, or some of theology actually wouldn't make sense. Some of the wording that God uses in the scripture would have to be a mere act. But if we first and primarily own ourselves, then ourselves we may choose to create or to uncreate. 
for us to have at least some semblance of God's power of creation, well, the only real being that we have any real power over, and this is aside even from the soil or from animals, it is ourselves. And turning our spirits towards God or away from God is a capacity that we either have or we don't have, and if we don't have it, then we're no better than the animals. Why? I mean, consider it. Do we throw animals in jail for killing one another? Do we throw animals in jail for killing a human being? Typically, we just kill the animal. Why do we act like that? Why do we act so differently towards animals? Well, because we don't assume that they are acting on any will, or essentially, whatsoever. They didn't arbitrarily or freely choose to kill a person or to kill another animal. They're acting on hormones, on instinct, on their nature. For a human being, we assume on the get-go that they have made a choice. And so we inflict consequence. And we insist on consequence, if we have any mind for justice. Anyway, I'm not saying that that is the uh, core answer to my question, why is it necessary that we should be able to uh, make the choice to reject our godness, but it's some semblance of an attempted answer. So leaving that aside, maybe that would be an interesting thing for my audience to ponder over themselves. Uh, let's move on. If I have any epiphanies along the way of recording this, I'll mention them. So if it is possible, at least hypothetically, for us to reject our godness, then it is also possible for us to accept our godness, or godlikeness, if you will. And that, in essence, is free will itself. Now, I'm not going to try to go, or I'm not meaning to go straight back into the debate between uh, free will and predetermination. It's not my goal here. I actually want to go somewhere else. I think that God wanted not just to have individuals, not just to have beings who were like him, but in order for us to be able to love him at all, in a sort of responsive action, we would, in fact, have to choose to accept what he made us to be, which is God-like, or God-image-bearers, as many Christians would say. In other words, if we have freely chosen to accept our Godness, then we will also grow the capacity to love God in the way that God wanted to begin with, which is the reason for his creating to begin with. Now, I want to stress the fact that a lot of this is merely hypothetical, and I'm not trying to say that I'm spewing out core theology here. I'm merely spinning my philosophical and theological wheels, and hopefully it's interesting or even helpful to some people. But if we do accept our Godness once again, in other words, if we accept the same sort of capacity of love that God himself maintains, then we can give back to him the same sort of thing that he has the capacity to give to us. Now here's where we go even deeper into the theology of free will. We have a tendency in our society to constantly ask why. Why did a certain, certain person make a decision? 
Why did a community go in this direction? Why did a pastor choose to do X and Y? We want a reason. We want a cause. We want a because. Any time we say something like, "I chose to eat this," me- sorry, "I chose to eat this meal because," what we are essentially saying is that there is a outside impetus that is in fact the reason why we made a decision. Now, philosophically, what we are really doing is we are denying ourselves free will. Because if there, <laughs> there's the word because, if there is a because for every decision that we make, then we make no decisions. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other reasons such as I wanted to eat because if I don't eat, eventually I will die, so I'm working towards my survival. Or let's go to marriage. I chose this woman because she was lovely and not just on the outside, but on the inside. She has good character. I could tell that she was going to be a good wife and mother and so on and so forth. That those may be good arguments towards the rationality and the goodness of making a particular decision. But if we mistake the idea of making a free decision with the idea that it is only because these things were here in the first place that the decision was even ever made to begin with, then we are once again denying ourselves the capacity of free will in general. Now, why do I insist on this? Well, I could go into the philosophical arguments. Uh, I recently heard some very good ones from Molyneux, but I'm going to go into the theological arguments. What because does God have? See, we just went through a sort of because, which is, what is it that love desires? And you may have accepted or rejected my argument, but that's besides the point. Let's say that I am correct. Am I saying that love is the reason why God made a decision? Well, if that were the case, then by the necessity of the reality of God then we would have to worship love and not God. Why? Because there is something that can impel God beyond God. If God does not freely make the decisions that he makes, then God is not the highest force in reality. There is something that impels him. Now, I had to use the word impel because I was trying to get a little bit further away from the becausing, right? Because is, this is the cause of a choice. To say impelled is simply to say that it's a sort of energy that, uh, like a wind, that turns you in a particular direction. It is not the reason why you make a choice, but it is one of the forces that guided you in that direction. Even the word guiding, though, when we're trying to apply it to God, is inadequate. Because if he is not truly and perfectly free to make his decisions in the um, in spite of or in the teeth of his own desire, then he is not truly God, and the thing that forces him, coerces him, pushes him to make a decision is actually God. So... If we want to embrace our God-likeness, how is it that we can ever have a because? In the sense of, this is the reason, this is the cause for me to make a choice. 
Now, obviously, this is not trying to throw out things like be wise in your decision making, be well researched, understand why these decisions are good decisions or bad ones. But at the end of the day, if the reason is not because me, because I made this decision in the end, first of all, you're rejecting personal responsibility, and secondly, you're rejecting your own capacity for free will. Now, it's a tempting offer, because to be free from responsibility is also to at least theoretically or hypothetically be free from consequences. If there is something that impelled me, forced me, coerced me to make a certain choice, then it is in fact that thing that is the responsible party. It might be some mere force or feeling or instinct. And again, this goes back into the difference between animals and mankind. And if we want to not believe that, then we better stop treating humans the way that we do, or we better start stop treating animals the way that we do. Anyway. And this goes back to, for me, what was what could be called my second conversion. See, I came to a point in my life where I don't remember exactly where or what pathway I came through to come to this very interesting question, but I asked the question, do I flatly and without any becausing, without any impetus or circumstance, desire to live good or to live selfishly? And see, when I asked myself this question, I even, and by some, I don't know, instinct of necessity, threw out the very factor of God himself. I wanted to know on a raw basis, no heaven or hell, no God, Nothing except the raw decision to be good or to be selfish or evil or whatever. And I realized that truly I wanted to live good to the best of my ability. And then that led me to the, once I kind of got out of that test, then I could start reinstating, you know, God, heaven and hell, all the things that I have believed in most of my life. And I realized that this makes a whole lot more sense out of what God wants. Does God want us to choose him with a because? In other words, does God want us to choose him because of some coercion or offer of paradise and reward? Essentially a carrot and a stick. Because we're afraid of hell, because we want heaven. Because we don't want, don't like the devil and we like God. Or something like that. Or does he want us to act with the same freedom that he, by definition of being God, must employ? This, to me, is the very first step of what it actually takes to be like God. And for anybody who would begrudge me the idea of being like God, well, you're going against the Bible if you say so. The Bible itself claims through the prophets, through a number of different verses that I would have to research to find them again. But whatever the case, God does in fact want us to be like him. In fact, it even says, be perfect as I am perfect. Well, there is one perfect thing that we can do very early on if we want to start following that scripture and that is to make a completely raw, completely free choice. Do I genuinely choose God or not? 
Now, I'll address one concern about this before I end. Some would say, yeah, but even a lot of Christians who, by all you know, appearances, are destined for heaven, can't say that they've ever made that kind of a raw decision. True. I absolutely agree with that, and that doesn't really fuss me at all. See, what I'm trying to get at here is not the difference between salvation and not salvation. That is not the argument. What I'm trying to get to here is the difference between pursuing our own God-created God-likeness or kind of just twiddling our thumbs about it. I think that we can take baby, not even baby steps, but less than baby steps, steps, crawling steps during our life on earth towards being more godlike, or we can take some big leaps. Now, the difference there is not heaven or hell, but it does make a difference whether or not we're going to live a pretty good life on this earth or a pretty good su- or a pretty high suffering life on this earth. Because once again, if we refuse full responsibility for our decisions, if our becausing is not because me, because I choose, then you also reject full responsibility for your choices. It's not just a matter of being godlike. There are additional advantages. And if you choose to accept full responsibility for your own decisions, then you are much more likely to live a successful life. Why? Because you have the power to choose. If you keep giving power to mere circumstances, to impellings, to forces, to instincts and emotions and so on, if you give them that power, then they have it. Because you are the chooser of who has that power in the first place, yourself or just stuff, people, government, whatever. Choose to accept full responsibility, you have chosen to accept power, to accept confidence. Choose to reject it, and you have a great deal less, by definition. So, I hope, as always, that's given you all a lot of good things to think about. Till next time. Hey again, this is Adam in Postscript. I was continuing to ponder after I finished the recording on the question of whether or sorry, why it is that we have the option or must have the option to choose to uh, embrace our godness or godlikeness or to reject it. And I realized that another answer to the question or at least possible answer to the question is much simpler and based on the argument as I already presented it, which I quite like because I'm quite a fan of Occam's razor. Anyway, it has to do with the very points that I had already made earlier, and that is that, theologically speaking, there is a part of us that is God, or God-like, or Godness, that God put into us from the beginning on purpose, the image of God, as again, theologically it's put. And then there is that part of us that is less than or other than God, in order for us to not just be more God, and again, add nothing to the universe. If that is the case, then our raw data is that we have godness in us and that we have something that is not God or less than God in us. And we have a question then. You don't even have to add in this ethereal concept of free will. The question is, what am I or who am I? How do I define me? And if there is within us, once again, these two parts, then we have the choice whether we are going to define ourselves by those parts of us or that part of us 
that is less than and other than God and call that myself, or to embrace that part of us that is God-like and call that myself. It doesn't make us the same as God. It simply means that we choose the nature within ourselves that is God-like, or we choose the nature in ourselves that is less than and not God-like. And God put that in us from the beginning, again, not because he wanted us to be able to sin, but because he wanted us to be something other than a mere addition to himself, which again, adds nothing. So the necessity for us to have the capacity to make the choice is intrinsic in the very fact that we are what we are, if this theology is accurate. That's all I had to add.